So if you want to open your Bible to Matthew 2, we're going to go back and correct some of the mistakes that... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I know your pastor's Matt, so no mistakes there. He's a good teacher, and I really appreciate having him ask me to speak. But um, are there any note-takers here this morning? A couple of note-takers. That's great. I'm a note-taker. I love taking notes. Um, Christmas time, I was given a digital pen. And it's the coolest thing. You write on a, on a pad of paper, and it automatically converts it to digital, so I can have my notes in PDF, and I can convert them to text and put them in Word documents. It's just a cool thing to, to have if you're a note-taker. But uh, if you are a note-taker this morning, I'll try to, try to slow down. I usually uh, have overheads accompanying what I'm about to say, but I wasn't able to do that today. But we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew 2. But before we get into Matthew 2, I'm going to take a bit of a tour through uh, other portions of the Bible, and then eventually focus in on chapter 2. You know that there are four Gospels, and each Gospel is unique. Um, A lot of people complain about that. How come, you know, John says something different than Mark Mark does, and Mark says something different than Luke does, and so on and so forth? Well, it's because they're eyewitness accounts, and everybody looks at the same events a little different way. I, I used to be an auxiliary police officer, and of course, one of the first things you do, or first things you're trained to do, is to take notes. And everywhere you go, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're pulling a car over just for a traffic stop, you're making notes, license plate number, and what the time of date is, and so on and so forth. So notes are really important, and we, of course, have notes in front of us, God's Word, the Bible. But you know that there's four Gospels, and each Gospel is unique, but what I like particularly about Matthew is that he zeroes right into what the gospel is, or or rather, who the gospel is. And his focus is on the words of Jesus. And it's more than likely the most complete record that we have of of what Christ taught. And if you you love the Bible like I do, um, the words of Jesus just, they just resonate with you, don't they? They they just, they just, Fill your heart because you want to hear what the Lord has to say. And Matthew quite often points back to the Old Testament scriptures for a particular reason. He points back to the Old Testament scriptures because he wants his audience to know that what Jesus taught didn't contradict scripture, the Old Testament scriptures. You got to remember at the time that Jesus was teaching, there was no New Testament. New Testament was still 50, 60 years away from being compiled and being uh, put into, into writing. And so when Matthew is talking about the scriptures and the other apostles are talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And, and Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16, when he talks about all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is very important, uh, not only to us, but of course it was extremely important for uh, Jewish converts to the faith. And so Matthew makes a particular point of continually going back to the Old Testament to to, uh, reconfirm, if you will, that what Jesus is teaching and what Matthew and Mark and John and Luke are, are talking about is scripture. 
Now, as I mentioned, Matthew is primarily writing to a Jewish, Jewish audience, uh, and he wants to prove from Scripture, the Old Testament, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Savior who was prophesied, promised to come to save us from sin and death and to reconcile us back to God. Now, in chapter 1, Matthew takes time to put down the genealogy of, of Christ, he, and he takes the time to do that in order to prove that Jesus actually is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Now, one of the hobbies that I do is genealogy. And I got into it about, oh, I don't know, 30, almost 40 years ago because I, I'm a post-war baby. My parents uh, were Dutch. They were occupied in Holland. And, and so after the war, there wasn't anything for them to do so the Dutch government said, look, we'll, we'll pay you to go somewhere else. And so a lot of Dutchmen left the Netherlands, and uh, my parents uh, came to the United States. And um, as a result, we kind of lost touch with our family. I didn't really know much about uh, my extended family. I knew my parents, obviously. I knew my, great, uh, my grandparents somewhat. And all I had for my great-grandparents were, were their names. But beyond that, I didn't really know much. Matter of fact, because of the advent of, of Facebook and whatnot, I've actually reconnected with cousins that I haven't seen in over 50 years because of Facebook. So genealogy is, is really interesting. And, and I know, you know, when a pastor starts talking about the genealogies, everybody goes, oh, not the genealogies. They're so boring. You know, we kind of tend to skim through them. But I want to I encourage you not to do that. Because when you look at the genealogies, you find uh, amazing things out about the person that the ge genealogy is directing you to. And in our case, of course, it's Jesus Christ. And I found out lots of stuff about my family that I didn't know. Because when you, when you study genealogy, you, you look for documentation. You look for birth certificates. You look for census reports. You look for um, you know, work, uh, work reports, death certificates, all kinds of stuff. And th all that accumulated evidence brings you to an understanding of who you are. And so the genealogy of Jesus Christ that Matthew puts down brings us an understanding then of who Jesus is. And isn't that what we're about. We want to know who Jesus is. And that's my aim this morning. I want to try to, to draw you even closer to Jesus Christ. And, you know, when we read Matthew, it's probably as close as we can be or that we can get to actually sitting on a hillside somewhere listening to Jesus himself. Now, the Apostle John, in chapter 1 of his gospel, he talks about Jesus being the word of God. Remember John 1, verse 1? Jesus is the word. And Jesus is God. He lays that out for us. Matthew also shows us that Jesus is in the word. He's not just the word. He's also in the word. And that is, like I said, my aim for today. I want to show you Jesus in his word as we study together through Matthew chapter 2 and why that's important to our faith. So to prepare us for that more in-depth look, I want to talk first about something that's found in Luke chapter 24. And you're all familiar with the story there. This is just after Christ's um, crucifixion, his death, and his burial. A few days later, we find a couple of disciples walking on the road to the village of Emmaus. Everybody familiar with that, that story? Okay. 
And Emmaus wasn't that far from Jerusalem, but they were heading there. And they were talking about what had happened. And, oh, I, you know, I would love if there was some kind of a documentary or some kind of a recording that we could listen to this conversation going back and forth. But unfortunately, there isn't. That's pretty much all we're told, is that they were talking about what has taken place over the last few days. And then someone joins them. And we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that it's Jesus Christ. Christ comes and walks with them along the road to Emmaus. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that he didn't immediately identify himself he walked with them and listened to what they were talking about. He probably didn't say much. And he finally asks them, what are you talking about? And so he, they respond to him. They say they're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet who was delivered unto death by the chief priests and the rulers and was crucified and died. And they had hoped that this man Jesus was the promised Messiah and that things were going to change and that he would ultimately redeem Israel but they're troubled by the fact that he died. And, and to make it even more perplexing for them, um, a couple of their company, a couple of the women in their company had gone out to the tomb three days later and they said that they had found it empty, but that they were told by angels that Jesus was in fact alive. And this is what they're talking about. And they're totally confounded by it. How can these things be? What, what's going on here? Why did the Messiah have to die? And, and so Jesus listens to what they say, and then he responds to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones. Isn't, isn't that great when the Lord calls you foolish? I mean, it, it's, it's a loving way of saying, oh, you, you guys, you got so much more to learn. You got so much more to learn. And, and you're slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so in that conversation with these two disciples, Jesus makes a point of reminding them about three things. Firstly, what's been said. He says, all that the prophets have spoken. So everything concerning Christ has been, has been said previously. And secondly, he says, by who? Moses and all the prophets, emphasizing that again. And thirdly, he says, where? In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Oh, folks, we, we don't need to go anywhere but the scriptures to know and learn about Jesus Christ. We don't need to uh, wait for someone to write a book about something. We don't need to go to the watchtower who says only through their materials will you come to know Jesus Christ. We don't have to go to the Mormons who say, oh, you can't know about Jesus Christ until you read the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. All we need is the Word of God the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets. And so he tells them to look to the word because the word is about him. And they can look to the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. And what will they find there? Jesus Christ. Not Muhammad, not Krishna, not anybody else. Only Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important for us? I want to point you to what Isaiah says in chapter 46, verse 10. 
So if you're a note taker, write that down. Isaiah 46, verse 10. The prophet writes this, verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 9, starting in verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Very profound word from our Father in heaven saying, I have already declared to you all that's going to happen, all that's going to be. God reveals in his words those things which have not even yet been done. Now, I also want to show you a couple of interesting things from Matthew chapter 1. And it's found in the, in the genealogical record of Christ. You might want to turn there. Just turn to Matthew 1 and look at verse 7, beginning at verse 7. And, and this is what I'm saying. You know, like we tend to skip over the genealogies and move on uh, into the chapter and, then, and forget about what is being said. But I, I want to show you why it's important not to do that. So read with me from verse 7. Verse 7, Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. There's a bunch of names there. And I don't know if, if many of us pay attention to who these people are and why they're significant. We, we know that they're ancestors of Christ, so obviously there's some importance to it. But, but specifically, these names are mentioned. So what we find at verse 9, we find four kings that are mentioned, or named rather, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now I want you to compare this with what is written in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now let me read it for you. It's the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Excuse me. Getting caught up here in some wires. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 7, in the genealogy of Jesus, we see this marker then, this, this signpost saying, look here. If you want to know who I'm talking about, look here. Go to Isaiah. And Isaiah made some incredibly specific prophecies concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, especially in, in chapters 52 and 53. And, and it, it's like uh, Matthew saying, here, here is the Messiah. This is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. Now, Isaiah was the prophet who was living at that time under those kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. They call it the fifth gospel because the book of Isaiah, or rather in the book of Isaiah, we find many of the prophecies concerning the virgin birth of Christ, his life, his suffering, and his death, and also his resurrection and his second coming just like we see in the four Gospels. 
It's interesting to me that we find these things in Isaiah because what Isaiah is writing concerning the Messiah, he wrote almost or more than 700 years before the events actually took place. I mean, there's no way that, that somebody could be born one day and say, I'm going to fulfill exactly to the letter the prophecies of Isaiah. I mean, I, I had no control over where I was born. I had no control about where I would live, where my parents would take me to live, and so on and so forth. But Isaiah is very specific about the life of the Messiah, and he wrote these things under the influence, of course, of the Holy Spirit 700 years before these events actually happened. And so when we look at Isaiah, we actually see a picture not only of, of the gospel, the gospels, but also of the complete Bible. And what I mean by this is this. If you look at Isaiah, you find that it has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah contain historical information and is about judgment. The Old Testament, 39 books, contains historical information and is about judgment. You look at the last 27 chapters of Isaiah and we find that it's about salvation. Specifically the salvation that God's going to provide. And of course that equates to the 27 books of the, of the New Testament which deal with salvation through Jesus Christ. Now Isaiah is not the only prophet who prophesied about the coming Messiah. But he made some really startling prophecies. And I really encourage you to look at Isaiah, read carefully, pertaining, especially near the end of uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, pertaining to the Messiah. So it's no wonder then that Jesus, as he walked with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, told them to read the prophets. And I, I can't help but wonder how much time Jesus must have spent talking about Isaiah, taking him to chapter 52 and chapter 53, and, and saying, yeah, this is everything that, that was said about, about the Messiah. And remember, they're walking with this dude, and he, they don't even know he's Jesus. They don't recognize him until he sits down and he breaks bread with them. And I, I don't know how they recognize it, if, if it's the way that he broke the bread or the fact that he broke it, and they saw the scars in his hands. But it's, it's just, it's exciting. I find it wonderful. So, so no wonder Jesus told his disciples on the road to Emmaus, to read the prophets. Okay, we're finally at chapter 2, Matthew. So I'm, I'm sorry for taking a little bit of time, but I want to just kind of set the stage here for what we're going to see in chapter 2. So let's read from uh, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so, as we enter into chapter 2, 
Matthew continues to point to the, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah by pointing to the scriptures because we see some major prophecies concerning Jesus who we, who we know in part thanks to Isaiah is in fact Jesus. Right there in chapter 2, we're already being made aware that his birth was in Bethlehem. And not, not just any Bethlehem, because there, there were a couple of Bethlehems in those days, but Bethlehem in Judea, pointing specifically to his birthplace. And that, was, of course, was foretold by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 2, verse, or, uh, sorry, uh, Micah 5, verse 2. Um, then we're told about the star that these wise men followed. And we're told about that in Numbers 24, verse 17. We read on in verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasury, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So 700 years after Isaiah writes what he writes, the events that he writes about take place, as well as those events that other prophets have written about as well. And we see these, these men, and we don't know how many there were, were there three or more? We don't know. These men come and they inquire at the palace of King Herod, where do we find Christ who is to be king? Now, when you're the king of a nation and someone asks you to point you in the direction of the real king, that's probably a problem. And we see the difference here between Herod and these wise men. Immediately, Herod wants to know about this, and so he asks his scholars and his teachers, you go and find out where this Messiah is supposed to be. He's pretending like he's interested, but he's not interested enough to go and search these things out for himself. He just goes and has some staff do it. And you know, I was like that at one time. You know, I become a Christian and oh, no problem, I'll just go and sit and listen to a scholar tell me about what the Bible says. I don't need to do much work. I don't need to show much interest. I'll just have them kind of tell me and lead me along. But you know, it doesn't work that way because I can't base my relationship with Christ on what someone else knows. I have to base my relationship with Christ on what I know. And that means I've got to dig into the Word of God. And, and so we see these, these wise men being completely opposite from, from King Herod because they had dug into the Scriptures. They knew that there was going to be a sign. They knew that the star foretold the, the coming of the king. They followed that star. They took an active part, an active role in building their faith and building their understanding and so these wise men find the child just as they expected from reading the scriptures by following the star. 
And Jesus tells us, my friends, he tells us to come and follow him. Follow him. Not some teacher on the, on the radio or on the TV or, or anyone else. Follow him. And he says, deny yourself. Don't take the easy road out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require some effort on your part. You're going to have to learn about stuff that eh, might not be, at first, all that interesting. Genealogies and strange words and different languages and, and places I've never even heard of before, let alone been. But yeah, he wants us to know him. Go after him. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross. Well, that's not a popular thing to tell somebody. Hey, you want to come and know me? Just take up your just take up your electric chair. Take up your gas chamber. Now, that's not a popular message. Because when someone was told, hey, you're going to take up a cross, it's like, you're going to be dead in a little while, buddy. And that's what we have to do to ourselves. We have to die to ourselves in order to know him. We take up our cross, and what do we do? We follow him. And guys, that's, that's when we grow in faith. We grow in faith. I, I've told this story before, but years ago, I was at a memorial service. Um, we were renting, uh, Calvary Chapel Richmond was renting uh, the gym of a uh, Christian elementary school. And the high school campus was located a few miles away. And um, somebody uh, that we knew uh, that had been part of the Christian school for a long, long time uh, had passed away, and we were asked to come and be at the memorial service. And, and so, you know, my wife and I were there and didn't really know many people. This is all related to the school. And there was this elderly gentleman that was standing there, and he was kind of giving me the eye. And finally he comes over, and, and he says, uh, I, I don't think I know you. And I, so I introduced myself. I said, I'm Pete Jansen. And, and he kind of looked, and he said, that name sounds familiar. He says, uh, should I know you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm the pastor of the church that meets at the elementary school. And he says, oh, he says, you're the pastor of Calvary Chapel. And I go, that's right. He says, um, so what makes Calvary Chapel different? And I, and I said, what do you mean? He says, well, what makes you different from any other church? And, and I said, well, I said, I, I don't know if we're all that different from other churches. I mean, we, we believe uh, the same things. But I said, I, I guess what kind of sets us apart is that we really take the word of God to heart. You know, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and by that, I, I meant that Scripture is without error, uh, that every part of it is true from Genesis to, to Revelation. And uh, he said, oh, he says, well, that's really interesting. He says, so how do you teach? And I, I said, well, we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And he says, the whole Bible? And I go, yeah, every Sunday we just open up a new chapter and away we go. And he says, wow, he says, I've never heard of anything like that. So, so I said, um, I said, do you mind if I ask you how long you've been a Christian? Oh, my whole life. I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 74. I said, wow. I said, that's cool. I said, you've been a Christian longer than I've been alive. You know, so I, I said, that's, uh, you must have really seen a lot of stuff. And he says, well, you know, something interesting happened to me just the other day. He says, I began to read Deuteronomy. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, I, I began to read Deuteronomy. I said, okay. And? He says, did you know Deuteronomy is filled with a lot of scripture? 
And, and, and I said, yeah, I said, I do. He says, it's just, uh, it's just it absolutely amazed me as I started reading through it. And you know, as he said that, it dawned on me, 74 years a Christian, he'd never read from the Old Testament. And so I asked him, I, I said, I, I said let, me, let me be sure I understand this. I said, you've been a Christian all your life. He says, right. And, and I said, you've never heard a pastor teach from the Old Testament? He says, not that I can think of. He says, well, what's, what's the purpose? He says, it's old. And I go, yeah, aren't we all, though? But, you know, I said, but there's things to be learned from. And I pointed him to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I asked him, I said, what scripture is Paul talking about? All scriptures God breathed, useful teaching, correcting, training. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, he said, I'm, I'm not really sure. And I said, well, it wasn't the New Testament. Didn't exist. Had to be the Old Testament. You know, it, it saddened me. You know, be, being a Calvary Chapel pastor, being part of Calvary Chapel, and we put such emphasis on the Word of God, and we take such care to teach it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, book by book. And that's not to say that topical messages are wrong. But, but you know, if you only subsist on Big Macs, you, your health is going to suffer, guys. We need to be thoroughly equipped we need to be completely healthy, reading all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. So God reveals to these travelers, these wise men, that Herod wanted to kill the child, and more than likely them as well. And so they left their own land by another way. I love that. God is so gracious. God is, is so kind. He keeps us safe as we travel the roads of, of the Bible. And, and there, there are stuff, you know, I, I've been a Christian, oh, I don't know, 31 years, 32 years. There's still stuff I come across in Scripture that I just scratch my head at, and I go, I don't get this. I don't understand it. But you know, it's not time for me to understand it then. Time will come as I take time to read his word. So we continue on in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So we see God keeping his son safe, and he gives his earthly father, Joseph, a head start, warning him what Herod is about to do, wanting to kill the child. And so they left for Egypt that night, and they stayed there in Egypt until Herod died. And that fulfilled the prophecy that's found in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So we're, we're just partly into chapter 2, and Matthew is com continuing to throw those bombs at us. Scripture, Scripture, prophecy, prophecy. It's found in the Word. Go back to the Word. Read the Word. Find out about who Jesus is. Find out whether or not He really is the Messiah. And then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth 
and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, children refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We see another fulfilled prophecy. And that's Jeremiah 31, verse 15. But verse 19, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, he took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So after the death of Herod, God then instructs Joseph to go back to Israel, which he did. And we're told here in Matthew 2 that they dwelt in the city called Nazareth. And Matthew says that this was prophesied by several different unnamed prophets. I mean, you can, you can look through Scripture and you're not going to find that phrase exactly, he will be called a Nazarene. So there is no specific prophecy using that exact, that exact phrase. But there are several prophecies made by different prophets from which Matthew might have deduced that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And we know historically that Jesus was known to have come from Nazareth and that he was, in fact, called Jesus the Nazarene. Because when people asked him or asked others where they could find Jesus, they, they would say, Jesus who? Because Jesus was a very common name. Jesus the Nazarene, the one from Nazareth. And then they knew who, who they were talking about. I've, I've given a lot of information out. And my aim, as I said, is to bring you closer to Christ, to help you understand that Jesus was just not some guy that just appeared, but that he was the one that had been foretold for hundreds of years. The Bible is an amazing book. And I love the Bible. I love teaching from the Bible. I'm so grateful for Matt to ask me to come and speak. And I have another opportunity next week at, at Riverside Calvary Chapel and then again on Wednesday. I love teaching the Word of God. It's all we need, guys. It's all we need. And, and it, it troubles me that in some churches, the Bible is rarely, if any, ever used. And, and there's a, a process happening. I don't know if you know this, but more and more Bible teachers are beginning to tear things out of their Bible. Genesis didn't happen. Revelation is weird, so it probably didn't happen. Um, there are teachers that say you only need to study the words of um, Paul. All the rest is, is not important. 
you know, we, we very quickly, if we start doing that, if we start paying attention to these people, you know, and, and if we, you know, we wouldn't, I hope no one would ever think of doing this, start tearing things out of Scripture because you didn't like what it said or you didn't agree with what it said or, you know, you start tearing stuff out and Genesis goes and then uh, Revelation goes and then the, the, the prophets go and, uh, you know, who really needs this poetry? We can't really understand. Song of Song. Oh, my goodness, don't even talk to me about that. Let's rip it out. We're going to wind up with a Bible containing one verse. Jesus wept. And rightly so, because it's about him. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we understand what an amazing book this is. And let's never be those kind of, of Christians who would just not maybe physically tear things out of Scripture, but just say, oh, I, don't, I don't really need to read that. I, I don't need to read Deuteronomy. Well, the Old Testament's not important. Prophecy of, is really of no value. I hope we're, we're, we'd never do that because by reading it and studying it, you'll come away with the understanding that the Bible never contradicts itself. It doesn't. Although there are those that are teaching in our pulpits nowadays that say it does. And it's sad. And, and I'm grateful to be a part of a fellowship that holds to the word of God and that we have men like Pastor Brent and Pastor Matt and Pastor Ed and Pastor Michael, guys that, that just dedicate themselves to the word of God because it's so, so important for us. Because every page of the Bible leads us into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he's the son of God. Now maybe you're here today. Maybe you've just found out about Jesus. Maybe, maybe you just heard about Jesus. And, and you're still not really sure about this. And you've got people telling you, ah, oh, you know, the Bible and... You know, we're not really sure about the Bible. It's written by men, and not all of it's true, and some of it is true, and, and what, what is true, we're not really sure, but we know what's wrong, you know. Uh, maybe you're like that. Um, maybe you don't understand why, why Jesus is important to your life. Perhaps you're doubting whether the Bible really is the Word of God, whether it can be trusted. I want you to know this morning, those are important questions to resolve. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. I had to ask those questions when I first became a Christian. And I'll tell you something. I didn't grow up in a church. I was 28 years old. I didn't have any friends that were Christians. I didn't know anybody that went to church. And yet I was seeking, and God revealed himself to me. And I came to that that wall that I think we all face at some point in our lives, what do we do with the Bible? I mean, it's hard to read. It, it, it is, unless you ask the Lord to open up your understanding. And, and I was faced with that, that problem as well. What do I do with the Bible? Is this really God's word? And, and some people were saying, well, you can't believe all the Bible. You can't trust all the Bible. 
Well, what parts can I trust? Well, we're not sure. So I was left kind of going, okay, do I trust the Bible? Don't I trust the Bible? What if I only take the stuff that I like? Well, what if I miss something that's really important that I don't like? And so early on, I, just a baby Christian, haven't even set foot in church. I am, I, I'm struggling with all of these questions. And I had to come to a conclusion. And I finally decided, look, it's either the word of God or it's not. If it's not the word of God, it's not even worth reading. And this whole Christianity thing is not worth following. But if it is the word of God, it is the most important document that's ever been found. And so I decided that I was going to start reading and studying the Word of God from that perspective, that it was, in fact, the Word of God. And I'll tell you, there, there, there came points where I'm reading stuff in the Old Testament, and I'm going, what on the, in the world is going on here? What's this all about? But I took the premise, this is the Word of God. And though I might not understand it, doesn't mean that it's not true. And so I continue to read. And here I am, 28 years later, still reading the Bible, and it's beginning to make sense. It's coming together. Of course, it, it, it helped to, you know, to have wonderful teaching from Pastor Chuck Smith and, and others within the Calvary Chapel movement. But what, I, what I've learned and what I know about my Savior Christ is what I've gleaned from Scripture itself. And I, I really encourage you, you know, if you, are, if you are new, if you've just learned about Jesus and you're still struggling with these kind of things, keep asking those questions. Don't give up. Don't, don't look anywhere else. It will come to you. Because these are important questions to resolve. And I want to assure you that the answers are found in the Bible. So I want you to, to take time and, and read and study and learn and please don't reject anything that the Bible says simply because you don't understand it or you don't agree with what it says. Because God, in his word, he doesn't say, agree with me. He just says, receive it by faith. Now, if you don't know, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. It was written by more than 40 different authors from all walks of life. We had shepherds and we had kings and we had prophets and fishermen and um, we had uh, prophetesses, if that's a word. Um, and, and yet, there is a consistency through Scripture over this, this vast historical period of 1,500 years, beginning right in Genesis chapter 1 and ending in, in Revelation 21. There's this consistency that points us steadily to this one undeniable conclusion. Jesus Christ is unlike any other man that ever lived. And he is the Son of God and the promise of God for the forgiveness of sin. And by putting your faith in him, you shall have eternal life. Not you could have eternal life, you might have eternal life, or maybe. No, you shall have eternal life. And this might sound foreign to some of you, what I'm talking about, but I urge you, don't give up on it. It's eternally important. If you are new here, I want to encourage you to 
Talk to the person who may have brought you here. Talk to the pastors of this church. Ask them to help you with your understanding. Or if you, if you would like, come and see me after we're dismissed. And maybe we could have the worship team come back up at this point. But, but don't hold back. Come and, and learn at the feet of Jesus, like so many of his disciples did. And that's what we've, we've been called to do, to make disciples of people. And I love to talk about Jesus. And I thank you for hearing me. God bless you. Can we just bow our heads and pray? Father, I pray that you would begin to illuminate the word and hearts that may be shrouded in shadow. Father, I pray that you would bless your people. And Lord, as they look into these things of which I have spoken, which you have allowed me to say this morning, I pray, Lord, that they would be awakened. They would walk deeper and more closely with their Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy to us. We're grateful for all that you do. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.